Amen. Amen. Thank you guys uh, for leaning in and for leading us in worship. It is uh, so good and so important. Um, and quite honestly, I'm just thankful we can that we can gather and we can worship. And we can do it safely and we can care for one another and we can look out for one another. Uh, but at the same time, we can still exalt and worship and glorify our God. So I want, to, I want us to say thank you to Barry again. I want to say thank you to our team again. Uh, I want to say thank you to all of you. Barry did a tremendous job. Thanks for sharing the word with us, being so flexible with me the last couple of weeks. It's uh, been tremendously helpful. Um, our team has leaned in in a number of ways, and I am uh, just deeply thankful for our team doing that. Yeah, it's a lovely sound. <laughs> so one other thing I, I want to make sure I just mention, you know, the church, biblically, is a body. And as it says uh, in scripture, when one part of the body suffers, every part suffers with it. And one of the, one of the things you know from your body is that when, you know, when, you're, when, when your left hand can't do what your left hand is supposed to do, your right hand picks it up. And that's exactly what's happened in the body over the last month or so. As we've had people um, sick, as we've had folks wrestling with COVID, we've seen people suffer with and have compassion for and provide care for. And that's been deeply meaningful and helpful. And uh, thank you for caring for my family. But at the same time, we've been reminded that the body is not about one person, right? It's certainly not about me. And the body is not about any one person. You know, our staff had a conversation at the beginning of January that we thought it might be wise if we started preparing for uh, some of us to, you know, possibly get sick and have a philosophy of, of next man up or next woman up, you know, next person up kind of thing, just knowing that we would need somewhere in here to care well for one another, but also go forward together. And uh, we've been able to do that. I'm just so deeply thankful for our team and for you. Um, but it's not just about those of us who are on the staff. It's about all of us as a body together leaning in and saying, how can we together live out the faith? How can we together be the body of Christ? And that's actually what I want to talk to you about this morning, because Quite honestly, there's really nothing like the local church when things are working the way they're supposed to. There's nothing like the local church when things are right. The flip side is true as well, and you've all experienced it somewhere at some time in your Christian journey, that there's nothing quite like the local church when it's not working right. There's, let me say it worse than that. There's nothing like the local church when it's going wrong, right? When there's unity, when there's not unity, when there's division, when there's not love, there's, there's hate. When there's, when there's not grace, there's, there's just anger with one another. Thankfully, Harvest is not that place, and thankfully, we are a, uh, a church of grace, and so thank you for your grace the last weeks, and... Um, Let's continue to make this a place where we're in the faith together, if you will. You in for that? 
Good, because I'm going to call you on that today and uh, challenge you forward in that today. You might have noticed over the last weeks that as we've studied the word together, we've been talking about how to go faith forward. And I appreciate Barry leaning in and helping us go faith forward. But I want you to notice, and it's been fairly intentional, that a lot of what we've talked about has been about what you do in your own faith, in your own faith in Jesus. But I don't want to leave this series without reminding us that we don't go faith forward alone, that we're not made to go faith forward alone, that, that we are made to live with a forward-leaning posture in our faith, trusting in Jesus, right? right? Running after him, but it's something we do together. You'll notice as you walk through scripture that Jesus spent much of his last days preparing his disciples, not only for his departure, but for the kind of people they were supposed to be to one another, the kind of ways they were supposed to treat one another. I don't think it fell short on Jesus' mind to the fact that as he was leaving, his words, that, that there were so many moments still where the disciples were seeking who was the greatest, where the disciples were fighting with one another over who was in charge or who would get the say, where, where they were ready to go to war, to battle, in order to defend him. And Jesus spent much energy trying to remind the disciples just days before the crucifixion that his way forward, his way of life was a way of love, was a way of grace. Listen to these scriptures. John chapter 13, verse 34 Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if, if what? If you love one another. John 15, a little bit later, Jesus said, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you, now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. And I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And so my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants. A servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything I've learned from my Father, I've made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. So that <laughs> whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. But this is my command. Love each other. Luke tells us, Luke 22 about this same time frame, that a dispute also rose among them as to which of them was to be considered the greatest, which of the, the 12, basically. Jesus said to them, look, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them, over them call themselves benefactors. But you're not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be, well, like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But Jesus says, he basically says, look, I am the greater one, and I am here as one who serves. John 13, 
just as evidence of that. When he had finished washing their feet, <coughs> excuse me, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. And he said, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord and rightly so. That's what I am. But now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, so you also should wash one another's feet. And I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. And there's this one I added to my notes, but I don't think I got into your notes. It's Acts chapter 16, verse 5. In fact, I think this is a great thing to pray for the church. It says Acts 16. Of course, Acts is the fulfillment of everything Jesus prayed for in the Gospels. Does this make sense? In fact, it's really, from Luke's perspective, the Gospel part 2. Right? It's the, the acts of the apostles. It's, it's the spirit of Jesus in the apostles at work as the church is birthed and as the church becomes the body of Christ. So Acts 16 verse 5 says, So the church, churches were strengthened in the faith and they grew daily in numbers. I think it's a good reminder that God seeks for us to, to grow as a church, but we grow multiple directions, right? We grow up and down in maturity and servanthood. We grow outward in love and grace and evangelism. What I want to do with our time today is I want to show you how this really played out in the first church. So if you have your Bibles, you might read along with me in Acts 4 where we'll be the rest of the morning, Acts chapter 4. And as we read Acts 4, I want you to think, <coughs> excuse me, I want you to think with this in mind. How much of the faith in what I read in the book of Acts, how much of the faith is something done alone, and how much of the faith in the book of Acts is something we do together. Acts chapter 4, I'm going to start reading in verse 31. There's a whole context here. I don't have time to, to give you the whole chapter. If I did, I would. But Acts 4 is an amazing story, right? You, you have uh, Peter and John before the Sanhedrin, and, and there's much question about what's going to happen and whether the gospel is going to be able to go forward. And Acts 4.31 says, after they prayed, the believers the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke the word of God boldly, and all the believers were in one heart and mind. And no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. In fact, I think one of the other versions says, much grace was upon them all. I like that. So much so that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, 
Those who owned land or houses sold them, bought the money from the sales, put it at the apostles' feet. It was distributed to anyone who had need. And Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, and he bought the money, he put it at the apostles' feet. And the story goes on. Actually, it goes on with, really without a break. In Acts 5, the next, very next verses, you have a couple who, who want the notoriety that Barnabas got. But, but they sell something, and they keep some of it for themselves. And they, they want the fame and the claim that Barnabas got, but they don't want the, the sacrifice, the servanthood that Barnabas was living out. I, I don't know about you, but... You know, when I think of what the church is supposed to be when the church is working right, I think about passages like this. And I think about the Barnabases among us who give of their time, who give of their energy, who give of, frankly, their finances. And I am going to end up, I just truth in advertising, just so you know, please don't turn this off, but <laughs> we are going to end up talking about, you know, the financial side of things today. But it's not entirely about that. In fact, it's about something much, much, much more important. And as I touch on finances today, if you hear me, if all you hear me saying is the church wants our money, then you're mishearing what the Bible is saying. All that said, let me give you what today is about. This is the one thing the message is about. The Bible is teaching us that we live faith forward together when Jesus' way of relational grace, when his way of relational love becomes our new way of life. You see, as the church was birthed, it was important not only that the church carry forward the message of Jesus, the gospel, but that the church carry forward the way of Jesus the way of grace. And we live faith forward together when Jesus' way of love becomes our way of life. When Jesus' way of grace becomes our way of life. We remind ourselves of this often here today in our bulletins. We have our uh, bookmarks, our Bible reading bookmarks for February. You know, we have a sort of discipleship pathway we've outlined on the back of the bookmarks. It's all oriented around love. We have the word love around our auditorium. We are reminded so much so that we exist to love Jesus, to love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, to love each other the way he has loved us, and to share that love with the community, with the world around us. Basically, this is just a fancy way of saying that the way of Jesus, the way of love, the way of grace is to become our way of life. For this to happen, faith has to become more than personal. Certainly it has to become personal, but it has to become something we live out more or less together. It's a reminder that we need each other. Jesus said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if, if you love one another. I got to tell you, quite honestly, I'm a little concerned after the last two years that the community around us, that the world around us 
that the nation around us would look at Christians and say, well, do they want to love one another? Do they? Do they love one another? So I want to go back to the text one more time. And what I want to do is I want to give you four faith-forward qualities. Four faith-forward dynamics of a healthy, love-filled, grace-filled church. What does it mean to be a life-filled, love-filled, grace-filled church? How do we do it? How do we live out the faith together? Number one, we live, the, we live with faith, <laughs> and frankly, together, that is passionate for Jesus' glory. Passionate for Jesus' glory. If you think about this story we read in context, you, you have... The apostles praying, and as they're praying, they, they pray, right? Basically, stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They're, they're praying for the Spirit of God to work in powerful ways. And it says that after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. There was this sense, this, this passion for Jesus and for his work and for his glory to be so important. And the story is followed by Ananias and Sapphira. Again, we don't have time to read all of that story, but Acts 5 says that this couple in the church saw what Barnabas did and they wanted, and I think this is the key distinction between them and Barnabas, they wanted the glory but they didn't want the responsibility. So what they did is they did what Barnabas did in appearance. They sold some things, and they gave a little bit of it to the church, but said they gave all of it. It's not about the giving. I do want you to see it's about the glory they were stealing. There was great consequence for them in that, and uh, I'm not going to dig into that, but you can read what happened to them in Acts 5. It was rather severe, I think, because they were stealing God's glory. So with each of these points I'm giving us today, I want to show us that there's a key discipline in play. Weeks ago, when I was last with us, we talked about some personable disciplines of being in our Bibles and praying and, and things of that nature that we do to grow faith forward. Today, as we're talking about how to grow faith forward together, I want to give us again some key disciplines. This key discipline for God's glory, for Jesus' glory, is just shared worship. It's what we're doing right now. That when we gather together, we're loving Jesus together. We're following Jesus together. We're studying the word of Jesus together. We're becoming more like Jesus, but we're doing it together. It's shared worship. It's worship that's passionate for the glory of Jesus. And I'm going to ask us this. And I'm actually going to ask this question a bunch as we go through this today. What does it take for this to happen? Frankly, it takes a whole lot of grace. It takes a whole lot of grace. In fact, I want you to say that with me. What does it take for this to happen? It takes a whole lot of grace. Yeah, did you say that at home? <laughs> it takes a whole lot of grace. Why does it take grace to worship together? Well, because frankly... Have you met humanity? <laughs> I don't know. Have you? 
You know, I mean, you walk into a grocery store, you go to Rotary Club, you walk into any given thing where people are there, and what you find is people instantly kind of gather into groups, and then they're sort of, did you hear this person, that person? And, and, And this is saying that when the church of Jesus Christ gathers, that the purpose for which we gather is not my interpretations or my feelings. It's not who thinks what about whoever else. It's this sense of, frankly, laying aside a lot of the things of our humanity and having a soul focus, a soul focus on Jesus Christ. What does it take for there to be shared worship? It's what it takes is a whole lot of grace together. I wouldn't be here to worship without grace, would you? No, grace starts it, grace finishes it. So we live with faith that is passionate for Jesus' glory. Number two, we live with faith that is united in heart. How do we live faith forward together? We live with faith that is united in heart. There's an old adage that says that we are saved by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. That old adage refers to the fact that it's reiterating what James 2 tells us, that, that faith without works is dead, that faith is supposed to produce these grace-oriented productions of faith, these, these works of energy. They're supposed to happen in our lives, but they come because of grace and from grace, because of faith and from faith. But in the very same sense, I think we can say we are saved by faith alone, but not a faith that is alone, because that same old adage is reminding us that we don't, we don't just live the faith alone. That we live the faith, as it says here, united in heart. There's another adage that people use a lot. They say, people don't care how much you know until... They know how much you care. You know that one, right? Right? There's got to be, when the church is working right, there's got to be, internal to the church, a really strong sense of caring for one another. Now, if that were to be, look, I get into my group, you get into your group, and, and I don't even mean small groups at this point. I just mean I'm going to get with people who are kind of like me who think the way I do, and you get with people like you who think the way that you do. What you have a recipe for in that context is this. But that's not a description of the church of Jesus in the book of Acts. Did they have tension? Yes. But did tension rule who they were? No. No. And why? Well, frankly, because they had a whole lot of grace. Much grace was upon them all. Verse 32, all the believers were in one heart and one mind. I don't know, this might be the version where it says, uh, the, the verse where it says in some of the versions that they were all in one accord. We're all wondering how Honda got into this. Right? No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. All the believers were in one heart and one mind. I want you to notice that they were given by God a unity focused on grace and the gospel. 
They didn't create the unity themselves. It was handed to them. They were to maintain the unity that Jesus handed them. This is important because humanly, we try to create unity in a lot of ways. And all the ways we do it end up, frankly, creating disunity. Because we get out a litmus test. And we say, well, here are all the things that I need to be unified with someone else. And then, I mean, notice this even in our own families, we can't practice what we preach. Because even in our own families, we don't always live up to what we ask of other people. Does this make sense? I'm guilty of this. So our strongest source of unity then isn't our common affinities. It isn't the way we think. It isn't the way we approach life. It isn't the way we vote. It isn't any number of those things. What unifies the church of Jesus Christ is our gospel identity. It's the grace of Jesus that exists among us. It's this idea that much grace was upon them all. So if, if what helps us live with faith that's passionate for Jesus' glory is shared worship, then certainly what helps us live in unity of heart is this sense that I'm going to call shared souls. Shared souls. That there's a grace in our community so much so that there's a relational grace, that there's a circle of love, that there's a sense where our souls are bonded together. Not by each other, but by the love, by the grace of Jesus Christ. So what does it take for there to be shared souls? It takes a whole lot of, it takes a whole lot of grace. Much grace was upon them all. Number three, if we're going to live the faith together, then another quality of a healthy, you know, grace-filled, life-filled, love-filled church is that we live with faith focused not only on ourselves, but on outward mission. That we live with a faith that is focused not on ourselves, but on the mission beyond us. Verse 33 said, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And this is where it said, and much grace or God's grace was on them all, was so powerfully at work in them all. This verse is a reminder that when the church gathers, it, it's not a holy huddle simply for the sake of us. In fact, if you think about it, the point of the church gathering together isn't us. It's grace, it's, it's worship, but it's also for us to be sent back out because the church doesn't exist for me. Think about it. We are the church. The church exists for Jesus and for for his mission. And so when we gather together, we're gathered together in order to be sent back out to live out the mission of Jesus so that much grace can continue to extend, so that more people can understand what you and I have come to understand that I need grace, that I live by grace, that I can't live without grace. I was reading somewhere actually this morning 
It just said, you know, I mean, if you think about it, if we don't have the gospel going forward from the church, then there's not much difference between the church and the Rotary Club. Because if we're just a good set of people to get together and like one another, then we're just like every other club in town. But the church is unique and different. The apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace so powerfully worked among them, as it said in Acts 16, that they were strengthened in faith and they grew in numbers. It says the same thing in Acts 2. It says the same thing throughout the book of Acts, that you get this, as the gospel goes out into the world, the number of disciples multiplies. What it's telling us is that a church must have a love that is healthy in its unity, a love for one another that is powerful, but a love that is not focused inward in its love for one another, but rather is a circle of love focused more outward. Another uh, leader I read said recently that a church lacking an upward and outward perspective will inevitably move inward and downward. Basically, a church dies when it decides to turn inward. The church is a movement. The church is a, a force that we are supposed to move upward and outward. And the key is to balance this. And in balancing this, well, we need a lot of grace. The story of Harvest is really a story of the grace of Jesus going outward into our community. I just want to make sure we never lose that. So two key disciplines, actually, for this one here, if you're taking notes. I wrote in my notes two things under key disciplines. Number one, shared ministry. And number two, shared gospel. The first is shared ministry, and the second is shared gospel. This is my way of saying that we need to both display the gospel and declare the gospel in what we do. We need to display grace and we need to declare grace. And so there are many, many moments where Harvest tries to work to do this very thing. In fact, at the end of every year, we end with a season of doing just this. From, from, from mid-October until the end of the year, we spend a lot of energy thinking about how to display grace and the gospel by showing works of love to those in our community. We give away food baskets. We give away uh, Christmas right, with adoptive family. We do, we do a lot to come alongside folks and, and say, what are your needs and how can we meet them? But as we display the gospel, we're also called to declare the gospel. And this is why I say that the two key disciplines here are shared ministry and shared gospel. And you say, well, wait, 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 wait. Isn't ministry a, a sense of serving that we do inside the church? And the answer to that is partly yes, it, it ministry is servanthood, and it is servanthood that happens. You know, this team stood before us this morning, and they were doing ministry as they served the Lord together this morning, and we were served in that. But notice that when we gather together, we're still declaring the gospel, right? Right, so there is both an inward and an outward focus at the same time. When volunteers serve in our kids' ministry, or our student ministry, we're doing the same thing. Likewise, when we go into the community and we intentionally work 
to find partners in the community, whether it be our NCM partners on the University of Oregon campus or our partners at Monroe Middle School, where we come alongside them and say, do you have families we can serve that have needs? We are working to both display the gospel and declare the gospel. Now, this gets odd and awkward when you begin to think about partnering with things like school districts. As you can imagine, they're okay with one half of the equation, but not necessarily the other half of the equation. So there's a tightrope we walk because we want to continue these partnerships, and they truly matter. But at the end of the day, you and I are sent to serve when we leave this place. And we are sent to share the gospel when we leave this place. What does it take for that to happen? Well, what it takes is much grace to be upon them all. What it takes is a whole lot of a whole lot of grace. If you've been around Harvest for very long, you would know that we have a heart for those outside the faith. And so whether it's you as an individual or your small group or your ministry team, we want everything we do to have an outward perspective that is showing love to those around us. With that in mind, I want to challenge you just to do something right here. Every once in a while, I like to throw this out and do this. Would you ask God in this moment to give you one or two or three names of people who come to mind who need the grace we're talking about. One or two or three names. Would you just write them in your notes? Whether you're taking notes or not, would you just jot them down somewhere? People you can pray for to receive grace. People who, who need grace. And frankly, we all need grace. People who are inside the faith, people who are outside the faith. And we all know people who are in the faith, but running from God, right? People who have sort of disconnected and unplugged from everything. But we also all know people who've never received the grace of Jesus and who need him. And I'm just challenging you right here, right now, to write a one, a two, a three in your notes and ask God to give you names to put in those blanks. And when he gives you those names, would you pray for them? Would you keep praying for them? Because we need a faith where there is both shared ministry and shared gospel, a faith that is focused forward on our outward mission. Number four, one last point. We live with faith. When we live out the faith of the gospel, we live with faith that is generous in sacrifice. Having read the text a couple of times, you would expect this to get mentioned here, right? We live with a faith that is generous in sacrifice. Verse 34, there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. This is reminding me that when there's been much grace in my life, so much so that I am blessed in a financial sense, that that blessing isn't intended for me to be a cul-de-sac to receive, but a conduit for that grace of God's generosity to pass through. And you say, well, hey, 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 I'm just noticing that this applied to people who owned land or houses. So you can say, well, hey, if I don't own the land or house, this doesn't apply to me. I think that's missing the point. I will say, and I've preached this before, it's, it's, I mean, it's the teaching of Jesus, to whom much is given, much is required, right? 
right? So we must expect that the more we are given, the more is expected of us. But generosity is not a rich versus poor sort of issue. Frankly, some of the most generous people I've ever met are folks who have absolutely nothing. But are willing to share a sandwich that has been handed to them when they don't have the next meal. And some of the most stingy people I've ever met are people who have far more than you and I could ever count. I'm not trying... to just get money for the church. But I do simply want you to see that this says that Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, Barnabas ends up being a great hero of the faith in the rest of the book of Acts. This is the first place he is mentioned. But Acts goes on to tell us that he invested in the lives of younger believers, that he had a good good eye and a glad heart, that he encouraged believers to remain faithful to the Lord, that he was humble and trustworthy as a leader, that he was patient with the imperfections of others. Here and throughout Acts, his generosity over and over and over again is (laughs) sort of held up and used as a model to say this is the way the church was. In verse 34 and 35, when it uses these verbs, right, to say that from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money to the apostles, put it at their feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. It's said in a way that it it, it says it basically this way. It happened in the past, but it happened over and over and over again. You could add the word kept on to every verb in the sentence. Land kept on being sold, kept on being brought and put at the apostles' feet, kept on being distributed to anyone who had need. This is part of that shared ministry we live out when we live out the gospel. I have seen some people take this passage and say, hey, this is proof that the church is supposed to live sort of like communism. That's just stupid. But neither is it proof that the church is supposed to live like capitalism. I know, if you got offended at the one, you didn't get offended at the one, you got offended at the other. It's okay. The point here is not capitalism or communism. The point here is that the church is utterly different than the world. Because much grace is upon them all. And of course, the key discipline here, I want you to fill in this blank, but I want you to then look back up here and listen. The key discipline here is shared sacrifice. Shared sacrifice. I think when we all sacrifice for the sake of the mission, what you find is that some give large sums and some give small sums, but collectively those sums do an incredible amount of good. Here at Harvest, we have a budget that's about a quarter million dollars a year. Quarter million dollars, which, you know, I mean, if you're, you know, like four, that sounds like a whole lot of money. And it frankly sort of is a whole lot of money. I certainly not sitting around on a, you know, a quarter million dollars where I just go, oh, you know, a quarter million for you and quarter million for you and sort of Oprah-like, you know, that's... But let me ask you this. Do you think that Harvest does a quarter million dollars worth of good every year? 
Let me ask it a different way. Do you think Harvest only does a quarter million dollars worth of good every year? No, I would argue that, that, that those dollars, every time they're given, are multiplied fivefold, tenfold, sometimes a hundredfold. Because you think about all the ways those dollars allow the gospel to go forward. All the countless hours of volunteer sacrifice that are put in. All the countless ways that the church lives out grace and the gospel. And does its best to do it, frankly, without asking for anything in return. Let me say it this way. Right? We live in a pay-to-play world, but that's not how the church works because it's not how grace works. Let's say it this way. The church is not a buffet of services that you and I pay for as people who sort of receive. The church is a community that we get to be a part of that has a mission that goes into the world that is frankly more life-changing and more eternity changing than any other mission on the planet. Can you imagine if the church worked the way the world does? Let's go just a step further. Let's imagine that the church worked the way the airlines do. All right, so you want to book your reservation for like six months from now to attend a service. All right, you log in, you create your account, you got to pay to play, right? So you got to pay to make a reservation. You got to pay for the snack that comes along with it. You want a seat? You want to choose your seat? (laughs) You know how it works. You got to pay for that. You want to pay for the privilege of choosing a seat, and then you have to pay for the seat. Like they can't think of more ways to monetize what you do when you fly on an airplane. You want to have a little extra leg leg room. We can pay for that. Right, I mean, it's getting ridiculous. You want to be pay- prayed for? You know, we got a little box in the back, you know, just, just jingle some cash in there and you get a minute and, you know, minutes up, you get prayed for another minute. Right? I mean, how much would it cost by worldly standards to do the ministry we offered? I would argue it's in the millions. Think about the counseling that happens inside the church whether it's the counseling that happens in your small group or the counseling that happens with one of our team. Have you gone to counseling lately? You, know, you see what counseling costs? My point is a whole lot more good happens. You want to hear the service? I mean, yeah, here's some headphones, by the way. Right? I mean, it's just getting ridiculous. You, you want to park? Oh, well, we have parking. I don't know if you know this, every single afternoon, our parking lot is 100% filled with parents from across the street picking up their kids from Cal Young Middle School. You know how much we charge the school district to make that happen? Zero. Zero. You know how much the school district charges us when we want to rent the field across the... (laughs) This is precisely my point. The world exists on pay-to-play. But the church exists because much grace is upon them all. What does it take? It takes a whole lot of grace. Can I pray this for you this morning? For all of us?
We always end our services with two prayers. The first, a prayer of salvation. The second, a prayer of application. I hope this morning that you realize that Jesus is someone you need. And if you do, would you just receive him this morning? That you need much grace to be upon your life. It was grace that was paid for on the cross when he died for our sins and rose again. And if you need Jesus today, would you pray with me just like this? Say, dear Jesus, I confess that I don't deserve your grace. But I need it. So please forgive me and my sin and all the ways I fall short. And I pray that much grace would be upon and within my life. And take over my life, Jesus, and flood my life with grace. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, the beautiful, beautiful thing is that when we pray that exact prayer, Jesus does exactly that. And you and I are testimonies to that fact, right? Because the very reason we are here is because much grace has been upon our lives. The very reason we're watching online is the same. Many of you prayed that prayer or a similar one, you know, a decade ago, maybe two weeks ago, maybe, maybe 40 years ago. And yet you need much grace to be upon your life. And if that's you, would you pray a second prayer, a prayer of application with me, a prayer of discipleship? Dear Jesus, thank you for laying down your life for us. Jesus, help us to lay down our lives for one another. Jesus, we ask that that much grace would be upon us. And we commit to make 2022 a year of faith, a year of shared worship, shared souls, shared ministry, shared gospel, and shared sacrifice. Jesus, may your grace be upon us and this community. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I just want to remind us as we conclude our worship uh, before we sing that uh, back in the back are our box for the offering, our, um, our baskets for the communication cards. As you would know, there are ways to give online. There are ways to do communication cards online. The bottom line is we'd love to hear from you. If I can serve you in some way, I'll be outside in just a moment. I love you guys. Let's stand as we conclude in singing today.